Chapter 3 Power Projection Tactics in Nature The most important causes of change are not to be found in political manifestos or in the pronouncements of dead economists, but in the hidden factors that alter the boundaries where power is exercised. Subtle changes in climate, topography, microbes, and technology. The Sovereign Individual Section 3.1 Introducing Power Projection Theory Many human power projection tactics can be understood by simply observing what happens in nature. Spend enough time studying how organisms behave and it becomes clear that there is a causally inferable relationship between two phenomena. One, the physical power projection capabilities of living organisms, and two, the amount of freedom, prosperity, and resource abundance they enjoy. Nature appears to disproportionately favor its strongest and most intelligent power projectors. Why is that? Nature doesn't necessarily have to behave like this. There are other characteristics aside from strength and intelligence that animals could asymmetrically reward by placing them higher in the pecking order. What's so special about physical strength and intelligence? Why do so many species focus their attention on rewarding their strongest and most intelligent members? Why do animals even need to be picky about who they feed and breed in the first place? Power projection theory lays the groundwork for understanding why physical strength and intelligence is so intrinsically valuable in the wild, and why it's often used as the basis for settling disputes, managing limited resources, and establishing intraspecies dominance hierarchies, aka pecking order. Nature has an incontrovertible bias towards its strongest and most intelligent organisms. Animals which master their capacity and inclination to project physical power in increasingly clever ways tend to prosper better in the wild than animals which don't. In other words, the strong and the aggressive often survive. The weak and the docile often don't. There must be an explanation for this, an explanation which could provide some insight into why humans project power, settle disputes, and manage resources the way they do. This explanation could help shed light on why emerging power projection tactics, techniques, and technologies like Bitcoin are so remarkable. To understand the socio-technical and national strategic significance of Bitcoin, it is first necessary to develop a first principles understanding of the primary value-delivered function of physical power projection. A mental model is needed of how physical power projection works, why it works, and what its primary value-delivered function is for the organisms which master it. To that end, the author begins a grounded theory about Bitcoin with a theory about power projection. This chapter explores the concept of property ownership and retraces the evolutionary steps that life took to become increasingly more prosperous. 
The reader is guided through examples of power projection tactics in nature. A series of anecdotes explore complex relationships between life, power, property, and prosperity. Throughout this chapter, the word power is used strictly in a physical context to describe energy, joules, transferred per unit of time, joules per second, to form a phenomenon called watts. From both a systemic and psychological perspective, physical power, aka watts, serves many useful functions in nature and society. One of the most useful yet underappreciated functions of physical power in nature is providing living creatures with a basis for settling their disputes, managing their resources, and establishing a pecking order in a zero-trust, egalitarian, and permissionless way. The author explores how physical power provides life with what it needs to undertake the existentially imperative task of gaining, maintaining, and sharing access to limited physical resources using dominance hierarchies. An assertion is made that physical power is the primary means through which all living creatures, including and especially sapiens, achieve consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of precious resources. This assertion forms the basis of an argument that, without the presence of physical power, most animals cannot achieve consensus about who owns what property. This simple observation feeds into later discussions about power dynamics in modern agrarian society. After explaining the link between physical power and resource ownership, The author discusses how organisms in nature adopt different physical power projection strategies to increase their capacity to capture resources while simultaneously defending themselves against predators. The author introduces a concept called primordial economics to explain the dynamics of naturally occurring phenomena like predation. A novel technique called bowtie notation is introduced to offer a simple explanation for why animals organize the way they do. These concepts are used throughout the remainder of the theory to explain why humans project power and how new technologies like Bitcoin could affect this behavior. Section 3.2 Physical Power and Resource Ownership Veni, Vidi, Vici I came, I saw, I conquered. Julius Caesar Section 3.2.1 Proof of Power is Proof of Ownership Imagine precious resources, for example, land, water, food, gold, residing on Earth many billions of years ago, long before our planet was inhabited by life. Assume there are no living organisms capable of exerting physical power to secure access to these resources. Would it make sense to claim they're owned? Would it make sense to claim that these resources qualify as something's property? If the reader answered yes, 
then how could the owner be identified if there are no living things securing access to these resources? A resource must have an owner to qualify as being owned or to qualify it as being something's property. If the reader answered no, then we have just established that the phenomenon we call property ownership is not strictly an abstract idea. Ownership has a physical signature in shared objective reality that is somehow related to physical power projection. The real-world physical power projected by animals to gain and maintain access to resources is somehow related to the phenomenon we call ownership. Since the dawn of life on Earth, organisms have evolved increasingly more creative ways to project physical power to settle property disputes, secure control authority over resources, achieve consensus on the state of ownership and chain of custody of property, and establish dominance hierarchies, aka pecking order. The control authority over Earth's natural resources that many plants and animals enjoy today appears to be the byproduct of energy exerted over time, joules per second. This would imply that property ownership has a physical signature that can be denominated in watts. Watts signal ownership. Organisms determine what they own based not on what they say, but on what they do, how they project their watts. When an organism decides to stop owning a resource, they stop spending the watts needed to gain and maintain their access to it. Perhaps an organism stops spending watts because their priorities changed. Perhaps it simply doesn't value the resource anymore. Either way, when an organism stops using watts to secure their access to a resource, their perceived ownership of that resource disappears. Ownership of the discarded resource then passes on to the next able-bodied organism capable of and willing to spend the watts necessary to gain and maintain access to it. Watts appear to be the only part of ownership that is based in a place we call objective physical reality. Physical power appears to be the only means through which organisms, 99.9% of which are incapable of abstract thought, can achieve consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of physical property. Most organisms are not capable of abstract human constructs regarding ownership. There are no laws or property rights in nature like there are in human society. There is nothing to which people agree to determine who owns what. And even if there were, there's little to compel wild animals to be sympathetic to abstract human constructs about property rights and legal ownership. It is incontrovertibly true that all organisms rely heavily on physical power to achieve inter- and intra-species consensus on the ownership status of limited resources. Even for sapiens, Earth's master abstract thinkers, physical power is still the primary means through which they settle territory disputes and resolve conflicting abstract beliefs about property rights. They write rules of law to define property rights, 
but then they use physical power to solve disputes about what the legitimate rule of law is, or what the right property rights should be. While there are many examples in everyday life where law successfully settles human intraspecies property disputes, what people often overlook is the long history of physical disputes that were used to instantiate those laws. In other words, our property rights exist because of the wars fought to establish those property rights. Nature's way of sorting out property ownership can therefore be conceptualized as a proof-of-power protocol. The physical power exerted to own a resource is self-evident by the fact that a resource is perceivable as owned in the first place. Power appears to be the only non-abstract characteristic about the phenomenon of property ownership that can be seen, detected, or measured, thus independently validated. If an organism detects ownership of a resource, it's probably because power is being projected by another living thing to signal their ownership of that resource. The proof-of-power protocol is easy to overlook for people who subscribe to the power projection capacity of others to gain and maintain access to limited resources. Most people living in modern society do not participate in the proof-of-power protocol like wild animals do, so it's easy for them to lose sight of the fact that people are constantly projecting physical power to settle property ownership disputes and establish intraspecies dominance hierarchies. Nevertheless, the proof-of-power protocol is always running. The physical power bill is always being paid, whether we pay it ourselves or outsource it to others. The property rights we enjoy today exist because people were willing to project lots of physical power to claim and maintain those rights. Without the expenditure of watts by living things to secure access to precious resources, living creatures are unable to perceive a resource as being something's property in the first place. Without physical power, resources are either perceived to be unclaimed, therefore not property, or resource ownership is purely an abstract construct that manifests as a belief system. Belief systems which can be ignored, exploited, or considered illegitimate. Section 3.2.2 Signaling ownership by showing one's capacity and inclination to impose severe physical costs. To illustrate how physical power is used to signal property ownership, consider a scenario where the reader attempts to take freshly hunted meat a precious physical resource, from a wolf. The wolf would likely signal her ownership of that resource by projecting physical power. She would accomplish this by displaying her capacity and willingness to impose severe physical costs on the reader for trying to deny her access to the meat. This proof-of-power display would probably look something like figure 8. Organism signaling ownership of a resource using the proof-of-power protocol. The wolf's capacity and willingness to impose severe physical costs on the reader to secure her access to the meat is displayed via her snarl, 
and it would likely leave a clear impression on the reader. Two things should be noted about this display. The first is that her power projection capacity is physically quantifiable. With the right combination of sensors, we could measure her capacity to project power in watts. The second thing to note about this display is the fact that those watts are the only independently verifiable and objective signal of ownership based in physical reality. Her ownership of the meat manifests itself through the power she projects to secure her access to the meat. That snarl serves as her certificate of ownership. In other words, her proof of power is her proof of ownership. Now imagine what would happen if the wolf were docile. Imagine if you picked up the meat and the wolf did not snarl and threaten to bite you. She projects no physical power and signals no willingness to impose physically prohibitive costs on you to prevent you from accessing the precious resource. In that scenario, you and neighboring organisms would likely perceive that she is either being friendly and sharing her property with you, or she does not believe the meat is her meat in the first place. Without her physical projection of power, there is no physical signature from which we can perceive or denominate her ownership of the meat, so it is not clear if she owns it at all. This scenario illustrates how closely physical power projection is metacognitively linked to the concept of property ownership. Physical power and aggression are signals of resource ownership. Organisms rely on other organisms to signal property ownership by projecting power. Without physical power projection, it's hard for organisms to detect ownership unless they have the capacity to think abstractly like humans do and communicate via common language. But talk is cheap. Abstract concepts of ownership are extremely weak signals of ownership that are often ignored unless they're backed by physical power. The proof of power protocol for property ownership is energy intensive and prone to cause injury, but it has many positive trade offs. The main benefits of the proof of power ownership protocol is that it's a zero trust, egalitarian, and permissionless protocol. Proof of power is zero trust because it doesn't require trust to function properly. It works the same regardless of whether organisms are trustworthy and sympathetic to our beliefs or not. Proof of power is egalitarian because all organisms are equally subordinate to Watts. Proof of power is also permissionless. The wolf doesn't need to ask for permission from the animal it hunts to take its meat. Her physical power gives her the freedom to do what she wants. Another major benefit of the proof of power ownership protocol is that it's exogenous to belief systems. Ownership of the meat passed from the prey to which it originally belonged to the wolf who hunted it down for no other reason than because the wolf projected physical power to gain and maintain access to the meat. She doesn't own the meat because she believes she should own the meat. Beliefs don't put dinner on the table. Physical power does. The wolf's continual projection of physical power 
is why she continues to own the meat. If she were to stop displaying proof of power to signal proof of ownership of the meat, then she would likely lose her access to the meat regardless of what she believes she owns. Now imagine if you picked up the meat, the wolf snarled at you, and you doubled down and snarled back at her. You and the wolf would produce two conflicting signals of ownership because you're both projecting power. In this situation, it wouldn't be clear to neighboring organisms who truly owns the meat. To resolve this property dispute and achieve consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of the meat, more physical power would need to be applied to the situation. It would not be possible to file a lawsuit against the wolf to challenge her custody of the meat. It would not be possible to engage in diplomatic talks with the wolf to draft an agreement about what the proper, abstract construct of ownership should be. These options would not be on the table because they require the wolf to be sympathetic to the reader's beliefs about property rights, and she isn't physiologically capable of that. She doesn't have her biological circuitry nor the brain power to understand the reader's abstract explanation about why the reader believes they are somehow the proper owner of the meat. Much less does she have the inclination to be sympathetic to the reader's belief system when she can simply use her superior physical power to shred the reader to pieces and have even more meat for herself. In lieu of the option for peaceful adjudication, the reader would have to settle the property dispute by entering a probabilistic physical power competition to determine the meat's legitimate owner. Some call these probabilistic power competitions battles. The winner of the battle would become the newly recognized owner of the meat. Why? For no other reason than because the newly declared owner won a probabilistic physical power competition. Since physical power is the only part of the phenomenon of property ownership that appears to be based in shared objective physical reality, physical power competitions are the only non-imaginary way for organisms with no belief systems or conflicting belief systems to resolve disputes about property ownership. Section 3.3 Life's War Against Entropy Thought itself is a limited lifetime phenomenon in the cosmos. The relentless rise in entropy ensures that any cogitating being that happens to still be able to persist in this unusual realm of particles will ultimately burn up in the entropic waste generated by its own process of thinking. So the process of thought itself in the far future will generate too much heat for that being to be able to release that heat to the environment and to avoid burning up in its own waste. Brian Green Section 3.3.1 To live is to project power. Big things have small beginnings. David 8, The Android A key observation from nature is that resource ownership for all living organisms seems to be fundamentally linked to physical power projection. The proof-of-power protocol is primordial. It has existed since abiogenesis, the dawn of life. 
It is half a million times older than Sapiens and their belief systems about resource ownership and property rights. Proof of power exists in every corner of life, at every scale. Everywhere you look, you can see that resources are owned insofar as organisms have the capacity and inclination to project physical power to gain and maintain access to those resources. This begs a question. How did the Proof-of-Power Property Ownership Protocol begin, and how does it work? Among the first resources that would likely qualify as being owned by life were mineral-rich deposits of nutrients captured from deep-sea hydrothermal vents shortly after the formation of the oceans around 4 billion years ago. Life's first major power projection technology wasn't sharp teeth like what we saw with the example of the wolf in the previous section. Instead, it was a pressurized membrane, little more than a bubble. A pressurized membrane is a wall or thin mass stretched across a volume that exerts force to displace surrounding mass, as illustrated in Figure 9, illustration of one of life's most dominant power projection tactics. When external forces from the environment contact a membrane, the membrane exploits Newton's third law to passively project opposing forces back at the environment to displace the mass of the surrounding volume. Using pressurized membranes to capture resources and survive in the wild would probably qualify as life's earliest and most successful power projection tactic, technique, and technology to date. Pressurized membranes enabled life to exert physical power to capture nutrient-rich volume from their surrounding environment. Despite consisting of nothing more than thin films stretched across microscopic gaps in rocks, these early life forms were nevertheless global superpowers. They stood as iron citadels capable of projecting infinitely more power than the lifeless void which existed before them. The tiny fraction of watts exerted by these microscopic bubbles were anything but insignificant. They were monuments of defiance against what could be described as life's mortal enemy, the cold and unsympathetic entropy of the universe. If we ignore the technicality that these microorganic structures emerged billions of years before the evolution of sight, then we could describe the emergence of pressurized membranes as life's first veni vidi vici moment. At this early stage, membranes were only capable of passively exerting equal and opposite forces upon the surrounding environment. But this passive, power projection strategy didn't make membranes a defense-only power projection tactic. The nutrient-rich incubatory volume occupied by these pressurized membranes was captured the same way Caesar captured Rome, by force. As discussed in the previous section, physical power is how all living organisms achieve consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of resources. Legitimate is put in quotes to serve as a reminder that legitimate resource ownership is an abstract construct invented by sapiens 
to assist with the peaceful adjudication of intraspecies property disputes. In other words, nature doesn't care about what sapiens think legitimate resource ownership means. In fact, nature does not appear to care about any abstract sapient construct. Nature could care less about people's property rights or rules encoded into property law. Nature only appears to recognize proof of power. The first living organisms didn't have the capacity to think, much less believe, that the nutrient-rich volume they captured was legitimately theirs or not. They simply took it by force, the same way all animals, including and especially sapiens, as much as they hate to admit it, gain and maintain access to their precious resources. Early life forms owned deep-sea hydrothermal nutrients for the same reason a wolf owns meat, because they had the capacity and inclination to project physical power to successfully capture and secure their access to it. Since these first little organisms emerged, life's pressurized membrane power projection tactic has evolved and taken many different complex forms over the past 4 billion years, but the function has not changed. From microscopic bubbles, to armor, to castle walls, to militarized national borders, all pressurized membranes work the same way. They passively project physical power to gain and maintain access to precious resources. These resources are captured by force. Period. Abiogenesis reminds us that living is an act of projecting physical power to capture physical resources. Life physically captures the oxygen it breathes by force. Life physically captures the food it eats by force. Life physically captures the volume it occupies by force. What life needs to survive is owned for no other reason than the fact that life has the capacity and inclination to project power to capture it. A quick glance into the night sky reminds us that the universe does not owe us our lives. We have what we have because we take it using physical power. As discussed in the next chapter, the rest of what we believe about resource ownership is abstract. Section 3.3.2 To live is to convert chaos into structure. In any fight, it's the guy who's willing to die who's going to win that inch. Tony D'Amato, Any Given Sunday The emergent behavior of life is something remarkable. By projecting lots of physical power to capture and secure access to resources, life is miraculously able to turn the inexorable chaos of the universe into something more structured. It then leverages that structure to exert more physical power to capture more resources and convert those resources into even more structure. Life owes its existence and prosperity to this process. Few things are as aligned with the fundamental nature of all living things than this physical power projection process through which organisms secure access to resources and then use those resources to build additional structures for no other discernible reason than to simply improve its ability to countervail entropy 
and survive a little longer. Having defied entropy and established its first beachhead of nutrient-rich territory, life's first pressurized membranes were fully equipped for battle. Fighting inch over inch for more nutrient-rich volume, pressurized membranes expanded in size and strength until they created enough structure to where they no longer needed the structural support of rocks. Using clever power projection tactics like closed-loop pressurization control, life was able to construct fully self-contained membrane bubble fortresses such as the one shown in Figure 10, illustration of an early-stage global superpower, capable of floating to unexplored, nutrient-rich heights. Under the protection of their pressurized membranes, these new global superpowers were able to form highly complex internal microorganic economies. Subcellular molecules self-assembled into increasingly more specialized workforces, trading various microorganic goods and services and becoming ever more efficient, productive, and resource abundant. Through this special combination of robust membrane power projection and high-functioning internal economy, life was able to follow a multi-step biochemical path towards ever-increasing structure until it managed to build complex, massive-scale economies we now call single-celled bacteria. Section 3.4 Primordial Economics It is not the most intellectual of the species that survives. It is not the strongest. The species that survives is the one best able to adapt and adjust to the changing environment in which it finds itself. Leon C. Meganson Section 3.4.1 Benefit-to-Cost Ratio of Attack There is estimated to be more bacteria on Earth today than there are stars in the universe. Suffice it to say, Earth's nutrient-rich volume has become significantly more congested than it was 4 billion years ago. As our oceans began to fill to the brim with bacteria, organisms began to face a new challenge, resource scarcity. It was in response to resource scarcity that life appears to have discovered one of its most primordial economic equations, the benefit-to-cost ratio of attack, BCRA. Every organism could be described as a nutrient-rich bounty of precious resources. Inside every organism are the building blocks necessary to create other organisms. For this reason, Most organisms represent an attractive target of opportunity for other organisms to do what we have established that life does demonstrably well, capture with force. Consequently, a weak, docile, or ineffectual nutrient-abundant organism is essentially a floating gift basket of vital resources for neighboring life forms to devour. This is because of the primordial economic dynamics shown in Figure 11, the benefit-to-cost ratio of attack, BCRA, a.k.a. primordial economics. Every organism can be attacked, therefore every organism has a BCRA. 
An organism's BCRA is a simple fraction determined by two variables. The benefit of attacking it, BA, and the cost of attacking it, CA. The benefit of attack is a function of how resource-abundant an organism is. Organisms with lots of precious resources have a high benefit of attack. Organisms with less precious resources have a lower benefit of attack. On the flip side of the equation, the cost of attack is a function of how capable and willing an organism is at imposing severe physical costs on attackers. Organisms capable of and willing to impose severe physical costs on neighboring organisms have a high cost of attack. Organisms that are not capable of or willing to impose severe physical costs on neighboring organisms have a low cost of attack. Higher BCRA organisms are more vulnerable to attack than lower BCRA organisms because they offer a higher return on investment for hungry neighbors to devour. Organisms therefore have an existential imperative to lower their BCRA as much as they can afford to do so by increasing their capacity and inclination to impose severe physical costs on neighboring organisms. An organism can't just devote all their time and energy towards increasing their resource abundance and expect to prosper for long, because doing so would cause their BCRA to climb and jeopardize their chances of long-term survival. To survive, organisms must manage both sides of their BCRA equation. To prevent their BCRA from climbing to hazardous levels, organisms must either shrink their numerator or grow their denominator. They must either decrease their resource abundance to decrease their benefit of attack, or grow their cost of attack by increasing their capacity and inclination to impose severe physical costs on attackers. Decreasing resource abundance is not an ideal solution for organisms seeking to grow, so increasing their cost of attack, in other words, increasing the denominator, is a preferable option. If organisms choose to grow the denominator, they must grow their cost of attack at an equal or higher rate than the rate at which their benefit of attack increases, or else BCRA will climb. Section 3.4.2 Lower benefit-to-cost ratio of attack means higher prosperity margin. A simple way to visualize the primordial economic dynamics of survival is shown in Figure 12 prosperity margin changes among different environments. To survive, an organism must keep their BCRA level lower than a hazardous BCRA level that will motivate neighboring life to attack them. The space in between an organism's BCRA level and the hazardous BCRA level can be called the prosperity margin. This margin indicates how much an organism can afford to increase its BCRA before it risks being attacked. Primordial economic dynamics seem simple and straightforward, but there's a catch. There's not really any way for organisms to know how large their prosperity region is 
because they don't know exactly what level of BCRA would qualify as being hazardous. How hazardous a BCRA level is depends almost entirely on factors outside an organism's sight and control. This is because it depends on external circumstances within the environment. If neighboring organisms, in other words, potential attackers, choose to grow their cost of attack to lower their BCRA, then the hazardous BCRA for that environment drops, and the organisms which don't lower their own BCRA lose prosperity margin. Thus, the same organism with the same BCRA could have two completely different prosperity margins based exclusively on the conditions of the environment the organism can neither see nor control. This phenomenon is illustrated in Figure 12. Organisms operating in empty neighborhoods have intrinsically higher prosperity margin than organisms operating in environments filled with neighboring life. With that surplus of margin, they can devote more time and energy towards boosting their resource abundance, thus increasing their benefit of attack, and increasing their BCRA without having to focus much attention on growing their cost of attack. They simply don't have to worry about their BCRA as much because there's nothing around to attack them, hence animals like manatees. Environments tend to change, however, sometimes quickly. They become congested. They fill up with a lot of other organisms. When environments become congested, they become contested. Organisms increasingly oppose one another's attempts to access the same limited resources. As environments become more contested, they become more competitive. Organisms seek to gain an advantage over each other. While all of this is happening, environments remain intrinsically hostile. Entropy is a constant, looming threat. And if entropy doesn't attempt to kill an organism, a hungry neighbor will undoubtedly try to devour it. Add these factors together, and we get the type of environment all organisms live in today. Congested, contested, competitive, and hostile. CCCH. Environments. Organisms can try to move to different environments that naturally afford higher prosperity margin, but wherever life goes, other life inevitably follows, making the new environment CCCH as well. Consequently, finding a non-CCCH environment is really not an option. Survival therefore becomes a task in learning how to adapt to the local environment by learning how to throttle down BCRA and buy oneself as much prosperity margin as possible. Different organisms have different successes at this task. Figure 13, Prosperity Margin Changes Among Different Organisms, illustrates how organisms which succeed at lowering their BCRA level enjoy more prosperity margin. A hazardous state arises when local environments become increasingly CCCH faster than organisms can adapt to them. When these changes occur, previously acceptable BCRA levels become unacceptably hazardous. 
it becomes more of an existential imperative to devote time, attention, and energy towards growing the cost of attack to lower BCRA. If an organism doesn't find a way to grow their cost of attack fast enough, they compromise their chances of survival by making themselves the neighborhood target of opportunity for surrounding life to devour. Most organisms learn this lesson the hard way, but some are intelligent enough to adapt and develop new power projection tactics, techniques, and technologies to continuously lower their BCRA. Section 3.5 Innovate or Die What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Friedrich Nietzsche Section 3.5.1 The Rise of Predation Whenever we study nature, we should remind ourselves that the behaviors we observe in nature are incontrovertibly winning strategies for survival. This is something to keep at the forefront of our minds when we observe that killing and fratricide are some of the most common, routine, and predictable behaviors in nature. Life appears to be well-versed in primordial economics, devoted to the task of devouring those who don't devote their time and attention to lowering their BCRA. Early forms of predation used dual-use power projection tactics which capitalized on pressurized membranes like phagocytosis or cell-eating. Forming cavities in their membranes, organisms figured out how to use rudimentary mouth-like structures to capture resources by engulfing particulate matter. This capability is extremely useful because it's multifunctional. Mouths capture resources and impose severe physical costs on attackers. In other words, mouths influence the benefit of attack and cost of attack simultaneously, giving an organism more control over their BCRA. This explains why mouth-like structures have become such a popular power projection tactic employed by multiple different species. Phagocytosis illustrates yet another vital function of physical power. Not only do organisms use physical power to achieve consensus on the state of ownership and chain of custody of resources, but they also use physical power to regulate their BCRA levels. Porous membranes and mouths demonstrate how some power projection tactics can influence both sides of the BCRA equation, making them highly desirable. Other power projection tactics only affect one side of the BCRA equation. For example, if you take a pressurized membrane but remove its ability to subsume particulate matter, you get armor plating. Armor plating is useful for growing the cost of attack by imposing higher prohibitive physical costs on attackers via Newton's third law. But, its inability to subsume particulate matter makes it not particularly useful at capturing resources to increase its benefit of attack. Nevertheless, armor plating is still a winning power projection tactic often seen in nature because of how it helps organisms 
with the existential imperative of lowering their BCRA and buying themselves as much prosperity margin as possible to keep themselves secure against neighboring life. Some other examples of important dual-use power projection tactics that emerged during the early days of predation were evolutions like Peely, hair, and flagella, tails. These innovations allowed life to swim about and capture resources to increase their benefit of attack, while simultaneously allowing them to impose physically prohibitive costs on attackers by outrunning them or by using them as whips to break apart their neighbor's membranes. Mixing these technologies with phagocytosis proved to be an especially powerful combination, leading to the emergence of what we now call predators. A predator is a proactive primordial economist. Predators are BCRA bargain shoppers who hunt down the best BCRA deals within their local environment. Armed with dual-use power projection technologies like whips, tails, and mouths, Life's early predators mastered the art of BCRA bargain shopping by swimming around and eating resource-abundant organisms with the highest BCRA levels. As oceans gave rise to more of these BCRA bargain shoppers, neighborhoods became increasingly more CCCH. Organisms which developed the most effective dual-use power projection tactics for their neighborhood became what we call apex predators. Organisms which couldn't buy themselves enough prosperity margin to adapt to their new environment were promptly devoured by these apex predators, as illustrated in figure 14 below. Apex predator using phagocytosis to devour a neighboring organism with high BCRA. Some might say that predation is a negative phenomenon because of how murderous and fratricidal it appears to be. This assertion is based purely on human ideology. From a systemic perspective, predation has benefits for life. In sufficient moderation, predation acts like a filter that weeds out life's most unfit and unadaptable organisms. By passing organisms through this filter, life re-vectors Earth's precious limited resources away from its worst prosperity margin growers towards its best prosperity margin growers, consequently buying more prosperity margin for life as a whole. In other words, the stronger and more adaptable organisms become at surviving against predation, the more capable life itself becomes at surviving against entropy. It takes a stoic mindset to recognize and appreciate the complex emergent benefits of predation. In a universe without entropy or resource scarcity, there might not be a lot to gain from filtering out organisms that are not optimized for their environment. Alas, that is not the universe we live in. Entropy and resource scarcity are very much at play, which means there is a lot for life to gain by filtering out its unfit members and re-vectoring limited resources towards its fittest members who are most capable of surviving against entropy. Without predation, 
Lifeforms might operate on something like a first-come, first-serve or finders-keepers basis of resource management. A lack of predation would mean that organisms automatically gain monopolies on the nutrient-abundant territory they discover because they are uncontested. Regardless of how strong, resourceful, or adaptable they are, the first to arrive at a resource would automatically be allowed to have monopoly control of that resource by virtue of their being unchallenged. Without the competitive stress of predation, these organisms would have far fewer external motivators to become stronger, more resourceful, and more adaptable. In other words, without predation, there would be nothing but unimpeachable, centralized, monopoly control over precious resources. Many business professionals have made similar arguments that monopolies aren't good for consumers. They argue that competition is holistically beneficial for consumers because it compels organizations to innovate and build better products. If we accept this argument as valid, then it stands to reason that predation is a positive phenomenon because it prevents environmental resource control monopolies from forming. Predation doubles as an induced competition for resources, a way to force organisms to earn their seat at the table. The result? Better products, in other words, fitter organisms more capable of survival against entropy, for the consumer, life itself. Without predation, the rate of environmental change would be comparatively slow organisms would only have to adapt to Earth's elemental changes, and the sudden-onset trauma of rapid elemental changes are relatively rare. Species can live for millions of generations unaffected by asteroids, supercontinent breakups, landmass adjustments, ice ages, glacial events, volcanic activity, and major changes in the chemistry of the atmosphere. Without predation to keep them busy during Earth's elemental downtime, organisms would not need to be as quick to adapt, making them far less capable of rising to the challenge of surviving entropy's next attempt to kill it. Predation kicks the rate of existentially threatening environmental change into high gear. Survival no longer depends on adapting to Earth's comparatively slow elemental changes. Instead, it depends on outpacing the threat posed by other life forms. The eat or be eaten dynamic of predator prey relationships gives rise to a self reinforcing feedback loop where the continuous discovery of increasingly more effective and lethal power projection tactics, techniques, and technologies begets the need for increasingly more effective power projection tactics, techniques, and technologies. More predation leads to a more CCCH environment with faster-falling hazardous BCRA levels. In response to this, organisms must figure out how to make their own BCRA levels fall faster, which ends up making the environment even more CCCH, and the dynamo continues. Living prosperity becomes a task devoted to making new discoveries that will help each organism survive a rigorous natural selection process.
The emergent effect of this dynamic is that life becomes faster, stronger, more adaptable, more intelligent, and better at surviving against the cold and unsympathetic cruelty of entropy. Section 3.5.2 We owe our lives to the ecological arms race caused by predation. Endothermy serves as a great example of the complex emergent benefits of predation. Around 250 million years ago, life above the surface of Earth was very CCCH due to the Permian-Triassic mass extinction. Organisms couldn't afford to spend a lot of time out in the open because of harsh conditions caused by predation and entropy. This presented a challenge for organisms seeking to regulate their body temperature. Not spending a lot of time on the surface means not being able to capture an important resource from the sun, heat. Shrew-like organisms, like the one shown in figure 15, a warm-blooded organism that sparked an ecological arms race, were able to overcome this challenge thanks to biological mutations which allowed their bodies to actively produce their own heat by metabolizing fats and sugars in their food. This power projection tactic is called endothermic body heating, or warm blood. The reader should note that when predation and entropy aren't factored into our calculus, warm blood looks like an extremely inefficient use of energy and a rather unhelpful power projection tactic. Why pay for something you can get for free? As paleontologist Mike Benton explains, endotherms have to eat much more than cold-blooded animals just to fuel their inner temperature control. Metabolizing food to heat the body is not nearly as energy efficient as receiving heat passively from the sun. Why would an organism volunteer to compete over scarce watts and then burn those watts just to heat themselves when they have the more energy-efficient option of receiving heat passively for free. The answer is because they live in a CCCH environment filled with predators and entropy. If organisms don't learn how to warm their bodies underground where it's safe, they must go above the surface during the daytime where predators eagerly wait to devour them. With warm blood, organisms can keep themselves warm and safe underground during the heat of the day when their natural predators are out heating themselves. Endothermic weasels can therefore save their resource-capturing activities for the night, after the sun goes down and their ectothermic predators are less likely to see and devour them. Because the sun is effectively a free fuel supply of exogenously available heat, Cold-blooded animals don't have to compete over sunlight like they do for their food. But for cold-blooded predators whose food supply suddenly turns endothermic, these predators have an existential imperative to become endothermic too, or else they risk starvation. This phenomenon leads to what has been called an ecological arms race where both predator and prey adopt the same adaptations and engage in a cat-and-mouse game where they try to out-evolve each other. In game theory, these are called strategic shelling points. Thus, 
Predation creates a game-theoretic dynamic where predator and prey adopt the same shelling points. This leads to complex emergent behavior which benefits both predator and prey, as both become increasingly fitter and more adapted to their local CCCH environment. As the University of Bristol explains, In ecology, arms races occur when predators and prey have to compete with each other and where there may be an escalation of adaptations. Endothermy sparked an intense ecological arms race. Shrew-like prey and their reptilian predators both developed warm blood. After many years of innovate-or-die predatory dynamics, these creatures both developed distinctively upright bone structures which allowed them to move faster. They both developed better eyesight and more advanced brain circuitry. Consequently, both animal classes found themselves much more capable of survival when the next major elemental change happened on Earth. Cold-blooded ectothermic body heating is indeed a more energy-efficient design, except when the sun stops shining and the world's free fuel supply of heat suddenly disappears. 66 million years ago, Earth's biggest, strongest, and most energy-efficient organisms learned the hard way that survival is not strictly about optimizing energy efficiency. It's also about adapting to a harsh environment. To be more specific, survival is about not freezing to death when entropy throws a 7.5-mile-wide asteroid at Earth 16 times faster than a bullet creating such a large debris cloud that direct sunlight didn't reach the surface of the Earth for years. Can the reader guess what power projection tactics are useful in that environment? Self-warming blood and the full suite of improved speed, eyesight, intelligence, and other capabilities developed during the ecological arms race between endothermic predators and prey. Deprived of the power projection tactics, techniques, and technologies enjoyed by the animals which had participated in a highly competitive ecological arms race, many dinosaurs died en masse. The resulting food supply chain disruptions led to mass starvation and eventually mass extinction for about 80% of life on Earth. Meanwhile, the smaller, faster, smarter organisms with endothermic body heating that had been locked into a highly competitive arms race found themselves much better equipped to adapt to their new environment. With 80% of their compatriots gone, these animals were free to feast on what the rest left behind. These special animals are still thriving today. We call them birds and mammals. <laughs>